This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining the monthly Schroeder's Global Markets Perspective podcast. My name is Philip Robotham. I'm delighted to be joined by Global Value Equity Fund Manager Simon Adler. Simon co-manages our Section 65 approved Global Recovery Fund that's available on major pr- platforms here in South Africa. For more information on the fund or any questions following areas discussed during this podcast, please do not hesitate to get in contact with your usual Schroeder's representative. Uh, We're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so discussing the outlook for global equities with, I'm sure you've guessed it already, a strong tilt towards value. Um, Hello, Simon. Good morning. Good morning, Philip. Thank you for having me. Perhaps, Simon, we can start with a recap of global equities performance this year with a particular look at value versus growth. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting actually. When you when you read the headlines, you would be easily led to believe there's been a huge divergence in performance this calendar year. But that's not really the case. So year to date to the end of September, value's up about twelve and a half and growth is up about nine and a half. So only a three percent difference really. But what's really interesting is there's increasingly differences around the world. So in the US Broadly, value versus growth is flat. Value's up 15, growth's up 14 and a half. But if you go to the UK, value's up 10, but growth's up 15 and a half. So yeah, over five and a half percent outperformance from growth in the UK. But the opposite has happened in emerging markets. In emerging markets, value's up four and a half-ish, and growth is down six and a half percent. And I think that's very interesting. You know, we have not seen growth actually fall in absolute terms anywhere outside of emerging markets. And I think that's quite interesting and something that we may well have to learn to understand and see in developed markets over time. We're often aware of the statement, values had a great run or since November vaccine Monday last year, we've seen the rebound in value strategies. And given what you've just explained with the divergence in value and growth uh, and the various opportunities therefore around the world, what are your expectations from, from here and your outlook for value, given the returns many of our clients have experienced up to now and this divergence across across the world? Yeah, and and, and that's an important point to highlight that yeah, if you if you instead of doing year to date, if you went back to the kind of vaccine announcements in November, value has significantly outperformed growth, as as you allude to. Um, I think w- when we look today. It's really interesting. Yeah, value's had a better period since the vaccine. But despite that, if you zoom out and look on a much bigger picture, value versus growth metrics remain extreme and in line or in some cases more extreme than the peak of the dot-com bubble. It's worth just repeating that. Today, we're at a place that on a number of measures, we are more extreme than the dot-com bubble. That is pretty extraordinary given how extreme that got. Um, And we think that is a pretty dangerous place for markets, frankly. And it's perhaps worth remembering what happened after the peak of the dot-com boom. So three years later, the MSCI World Index was down 45%. Meanwhile, value was up in absolute terms. If you go five years on, the MSCI World Index was still down over 10%. And value is up something like 200 percent. 
Today, we are looking at metrics that are on the same basis as what produced that level of performance. Now, what we think is actually more important is, is what's the outlook for value itself? Well, in absolute terms, the cheapest quintile of the market, which is how we define value, is trading at levels that would imply kind of 10, 11, 12 percent annual compounded returns on the basis of history. So when value has traded at these multiples historically, that's what it's delivered over the subsequent period. Clearly, we don't know what anything's going to happen, but that's what the measure would suggest. And then when we look at our portfolios, we see decent upside, which is what really matters and encourages us. So, you know, value's had a better period since the vaccine announcements. But if you zoom out, we are still as extreme as we were at the peak of the dot-com boom. Value looks cheap and attractive in absolute terms, and our portfolios you know, have decent levels of upside. So we're, we're quite excited about what may come. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, given, given what's happening at market levels, and we're talking about inflation in most or inflationary concerns in most client conversations, looking at the global backdrop, um, looking at cash flows from companies, corporate returns, government support. What's your um, what, what's your view on what's happening at a market level? Well, I, I think you're right that inflation is the number one question. Is it going to come back? How much will it come back? How permanent will that become? Or how, will it be transitory, as, as many central bankers are hoping? And what will the impact be? I mean, Frankly, when you go out and about at the moment, every shopkeeper, every builder, every business one talks about or talks to are facing huge demand and proper inflation. It frankly, it appears to be everywhere. And now I think there is a real risk that policymakers are behind the curve regarding inflation now. You know, what would the impact be? As ever, that is very hard to know. But higher interest rates would be one likely outcome. And yeah, that would be the final piece in the puzzle for bank shares to perform. And it may also come as as quite a shock to holders of shares with big PE multiples. And, and I think that could be a very, very interesting thing to watch. What happens to these very expensive shares in a period where inflation comes and then higher interest rates come? We think that could be a pretty uh, alarming thing for some of these high growth, high quality shares that are on big, big multiples today. So if we're looking then at the company levels and we've seen um, a number of references to pent up consumer demand, um, M&A activity increasing, chairman confidence, buybacks, um, you, you yourself and, and, and the other value member teams have constantly been um, referencing the increase now in, in, in company or board level decisions to buy shares back and, and return cash to shareholders. What what is the what else is happening at company level that excites you at the moment? Yeah, it's it's an exciting time, frankly, at company level. Things are really really happening. I think many companies are in a much much better place than they were two years ago. You know, they've they've used the last eighteen months to do a number of things. So you know, balance sheets are much much stronger. You see banks with record levels of capital, for example, despite having gone through a one in fifty year recession. You've seen companies take out huge amounts of cost and, and totally reset their their cost bases. Yeah, something like a Royal Mail would be an example of that. As you allude to, you've got companies returning cash to shareholders around the world, whether you're looking in the US, in Russia, in Japan or in Europe. We're seeing companies really focus on returning cash to shareholders. We're seeing M&A activity. You know, Morrison's is being taken over in the UK. That's been a value company 
being taken over by US private equity. So the environment looks pretty positive. You know, balance sheets repaired, costs taken out, shareholder friendly management teams and even takeovers of cheap companies. So you know, obviously it's not all rosy and there are always things that are, that are less positive. But, you know, in the round, things are looking much more positive from a stock specific perspective in our portfolios. As if, frankly, companies have used the last 18 months to reshape their businesses in ways that would have been inconceivable two years ago, but they've been able to do over the last period of time. You've mentioned banks here, clearly a sector that is very commonly associated with value. Um, energy is also a sector that is, is commonly associated with value and often referenced in, in your uh, quarterly updates and fund updates. Um, could we just touch on uh, the energy sector, given the changes and the updates uh, regarding uh, the 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 uh, natural gas prices and the um, disparity and the usual correlation you see between natural gas prices and oil uh, and the impacts on some of those uh, some of the, uh, some of those individual companies at a sector level within your portfolios. Yeah, it's it's fascinating what's going on in the energy market and yeah, clearly if one takes a step back, there is a very big structural threat to the energy companies in the form of of the global uh, attempts to reduce carbon emissions and the ESG movement is 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 a challenge for, for energy companies. But ironically, it's a challenge that we think is actually going to benefit shareholders because at last the energy companies are reducing capital expenditure. They're just not investing their high levels of profits back into the ground, which is what they've done for the last two, three, four decades. At last, they're reducing costs. They're not using all of this extra profit to spend money everywhere. And at last, they're returning capital to shareholders. So so the the global movement uh, uh, around energy companies is created a, a number of behaviours within the energy companies that we think is both likely to be good for the environment and likely to be very good for shareholders. So that's one of the kind of great ironies we believe at the moment. And we think they are very attractive. Uh, We've got holdings that are exposed just to natural gas. We've got holdings exposed to oil. And, you know, we felt for a long time that these companies were attractive on very conservative assumptions. And we're seeing today much higher levels of oil price than we've assumed in our core valuations and, and obviously much higher gas prices. So we think it's a very interesting sector. Balance sheets are much better than they have been. Costs are much lower. Companies are focused on returning capital to shareholders. The energy sector has changed in, in terms of the ones that we own. And we think that's changing for the better for both the world and actually for, for share prices and our clients ultimately. So you know, it's, a, it's a big difference to, to where energy was you know, even three, four, five years ago. You've also previously mentioned the diverse opportunities you've now had, uh, certainly over the last 18 months and during the pandemic, um, for investing on a, on a, on a valuation basis. Um, are there any other sectors that are not traditionally associated with value that you guys are still seeing incredible opportunities and therefore positions within the portfolio that you're taking advantage of? Absolutely. So, Today, we see a much wider opportunity set within cheap companies than we've seen for a number of years. And some examples of, of, of the kind of areas you've been just alluding to would be old tech. You know, some of the big tech companies that aren't the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, but the ones that are absolutely critical in the infrastructure of, of technology, but which, you know, haven't been flavor of the month. We think some of those are 
are looking very attractive. They've often got great balance sheets. They've often got very high returns on capital and, and a focus on returning capital to shareholders. Big pharma, there's some very attractive big pharma companies out there where the stock market is myopically focused on what will happen to the product pipeline over the next few years. But forgets that these are very big businesses with huge R&D budgets. They've spent lots of money buying in very, very high quality pipelines. And it may require patience, but with patience, one will come out the other end and have very high quality, reasonably high growth, high returns on capital, high levels of cash generation, pharma businesses with good balance sheets. So we think there's, there's attractions there. We see a number of companies in Japan that we think are really interesting. You know, Japan is an area where one has to fish very, very carefully. And we often say no, but there are a number of companies in Japan you know, with exceptional balance sheets, incredibly attractive valuations, and critically, where the companies are buying back shares and returning capital to shareholders, and sometimes in very significant ways. There's always turnarounds as a value investor, but there's turnarounds all over the place in all kinds of sectors and geographies. So, you know, when we look in the round, the portfolio, yes, it's it's got the banks and the energy, it's got the exposure to to what might be regarded as the as the traditional or the or the value that everyone expects, we've got that. But we've also got some of this old tech, some of this pharma, some of the turnaround, some of Japan, you know, which we think makes the portfolio broader than it's been for, for, for many years and more attractive and with better balance sheets and higher levels of returns to shareholders. So, uh, so we think it's, it's looking more interesting than it has done. Certainly reasons to be, uh, to be positive and optimistic going forward as a value investor. You mentioned... Um, Morrison's earlier in a private equity takeover that's ongoing. Um, I just wanted to touch on private equity because because we're, we're we're seeing a reduction in listed companies and and often there's a reference to witnessing the decline of of public equity markets. I just wanted to hear what your thoughts would be on the impact of this for you as a global equity fund manager. Frankly, there are still plenty of companies to choose from. The public markets are absolutely huge. You know, there will always be a waxing and a waning of the number of publicly listed companies. They will come in and it will come out of favour. But we have vast choice in front of us. And you know, whilst it's easy, as you say, to highlight the kind of de-equitisation, the likes of Morrison's, it, it's important to remember that there's also a trend at the moment of demergers. We've got Vitesco, which has been demerged from Continental in Germany. We've got IBM looking at a demerger. We've got a number of pharma companies demerging, particularly in the US. So there is equitization as well and new companies coming to the market, which we can go and look at and decide whether we think it's attractive. So we don't really worry about that. If we're honest, there, there's plenty to keep us busy and, and, in all, and plenty to allow us to build attractive portfolios for clients. Is it particularly difficult when you're doing the analysis of a of an underlying company's balance sheet and, and, and profitability or opportunities going forward if they are going through a demerger? Um, yeah, it makes it harder. Absolutely. You know, you have to try and piece together the historic profits. And yeah, ultimately, that's our, our bread and butter, though. That's what we love doing, spending our time deep in the accounts, trying to work out what the real level of profits are for the company, what the real balance sheet is, not the one they want us to believe. And in a demerger, that is absolutely, you know, we rub our hands together, you know, close the door and get on with it for a day or two and really get to the bottom of it. And so, you know, 
sometimes it's easier than others. South 32 is a, a demerged business that came out of BHP Billiton many years ago. And ultimately, it was a division of BHP. So you could see the historic profits. Vitesco is a division of Continental, really. IBM, you know, we, we've got to see what comes. But ultimately, they all have to publish prospectuses. Now, the problem with the prospectus is it only typically gives you three years of history. So that's when we have to get to work at building a longer term history to really see what happens in the good times and what happens in the bad times for these businesses. So it's harder than a the, than the typical business. But we, we like things that are difficult and uh, we rub our hands together and get on with it. Fantastic. Um, finally, I think it'd be remiss of me not to touch on sustainability. Uh, it's obviously a key area of focus from a strategic perspective at Schroders. Uh, we're, we're well known for having over 20 years of history of incorporating ESG in our processes. Uh, last year, we achieved the full ESG integration across all of our managed assets. Um, I just wanted to see what, what or how this has impacted your life on a day-to-day -day basis, Simon. Yeah, I mean, Ultimately, we've been looking at sustainability of companies for many years. You know, if a company's been treating its stakeholders badly, that normally comes back to bite. You know, the ultimate example would be Tesco's in the UK. Tesco's had a fantastic period under Terry Leahy when they focused excessively on their customers. They then focused excessively on their margins and their shareholders, and they ripped off the customers. They, you know, paid their suppliers late, they reduced employees in store to, and that reduced customer service and made everyone have to work harder. And the margins spiraled downwards. You know, Dave Lewis, that led the recovery of that business, focused back on stakeholders, reducing prices to customers, more employees in store, fair and transparent terms for suppliers. So you know, sustainability is a key part of understanding whether the company you're looking at is a value trap or isn't a value trap. And we've always done that. You know, if a company has been governed badly, for years, that is bad for shareholder uh, shareholder value. Look at Japan over the last 20 years, very poor governance and very poor shareholder returns. So you know, we've been doing this for a long time. We used to call it analysis, um, but it is now called sustainability or ESG. We, we were incorporating that as you'd expect. So it hasn't led to a dramatic change for us. The area where there has been a change though, is in the ability to get hold of data. And you know, Schroders have built some very sophisticated data tools to try and help us understand how well companies treating its stakeholders, whether it does more good than harm. Now, none of these are perfect. They, they, it's impossible to make a perfect tool of that nature, but they're very useful for us in building a wider picture and a data-led picture, importantly, in order to assess a company. And there are also tools outside of Schroders that can help us. So, you know, we're carrying on doing what we've done for a long time, but we've probably got a greater armory of tools from both within Schroders and outside to Schroders to help us do that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Simon. Thank you for your time today. It, in summary, it sounds like there's still a huge opportunity remaining in the market for diversified value opportunities. There's significant upside on a relative and absolute basis, as you've covered. Sounds like earnings momentum and operational performance from companies is con continuing to go from strength to strength. So plenty of reasons to be cheerful. Thank you so much um, uh, for your time today. And, and uh, thank you, listeners, for, for tuning in. Um, as we say, if there's any questions that you'd like to discuss from today's podcast or the content contained within, then please do reach out to your uh, local Schroeder's representative and we'll look forward to engaging with you future. Thanks again, Simon. Thank you. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested.
Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998. Registration number 01893220. Incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment. This podcast does not constitute an offer to anyone or a solicitation by anyone to subscribe for shares of Schroeder International Selection Fund. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice and is therefore not a recommendation to buy or sell shares. An investment in the company entails risks, which are fully described in the prospectus. Subscriptions for shares of the company can only be made on the basis of its latest key investor information document and prospectus, together with the latest audited annual report, copies of which can be obtained free of charge from Schroeder's Investment Management, South Africa.